Now we turn to our theme tonight, the grace of God. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Well, I guess that by now you're fairly mentally stretched. I guess that you're spiritually satisfied, I hope so, and that you haven't got indigestion, that you're ready for more bread from heaven. And I guess that you may be physically a little stiff and even sleepy, but I will do my best to put that right. We're going to look at a wonderful theme tonight, the grace of God. We're going to focus on a very short story, which is a very moving and wonderful one, but I don't intend to leave you on an emotional high tonight. I think that would be rather bad for you, bad for me too because I want to finish tonight with three questions of application to bring us right down to earth so that we may translate the theme of tonight into life to which we go back tomorrow. Mark chapter 2, 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now that may seem a very small story to study tonight, but I assure you that in those few words in verse 14 there is tremendous spiritual treasure. I passed a shop in Philadelphia yesterday which said it had the best counterfeit diamonds in town. Not seen a shop like that before. Well, I can assure you that verse 14 is not counterfeit treasure. Uh, this verse focuses the grace of God in the forgiveness of sinners. The grace of God is intimately connected with the forgiveness of sin and the forgiveness of sinners, and that is the theme of this great section here. And so I pray that God may speak through this passage to you and to me tonight and may send us out believing in the grace of God and understanding what it means to believe in the grace of God. Let's, first of all, put it in context. I must do that because I told the preachers yesterday that they must do that and I must practice what I preach very briefly, the context in chapter 1 is that Jesus presents himself as one having authority. This great power over all the enemies of mankind. And in particular, as he stands out to preach in the synagogue, Satan cries out, recognizing that his doom is certain. It's a lovely picture. We have a course called Read, Mark, Learn in London, we find that the young people coming up to London, most of them nurses and young medical students for the big teaching hospitals around us because we're not really in a residential area and they're the nearest people to us. We find that most of these very intelligent and charming young people are totally ignorant of the gospel record these days. Sunday schools seem to have disappeared. Bible classes are not what they were. So we started some years ago a course called Read, Mark, Learn. It's quite obvious what that course is. We read and study Mark's Gospel together. There are 16 weeks in the first two terms and 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel, and we aim to cover that one Gospel in their first winter in London. Our aim is that they might know Christ and him crucified through the Gospel of Mark before they have finished their first year of study. Uh, I love November. At least I don't love November. It's the most horrible month in the year in London, climate-wise, but I love it, read, mark, learn-wise. Because although I don't myself have anything to do now with the course or teach it, I sometimes slip across in November to see these people at the end of their evening study. And I know by the time they've got to uh, November that they've gone through chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Mark. And there has emerged to their amazement a figure of Jesus that they never knew before. No longer the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, true though that is in its way, no longer the picture on the nursery wall, but a figure who has all authority in heaven and earth. As you read those early chapters of Mark, it's as though he puts across before your eyes pictures of all the enemies of mankind, Satan, sickness, 
sin and guilt, religious traditionalism that holds men in idolatry throughout the world still today, uh, the forces of nature, storms in chapter 4. And as these enemies of mankind confront Jesus, it's as though they stand in his way. They say, we've had this world under our grip all these many centuries, and we don't intend to lose our grip on mankind. Jesus advances on these enemies, sin and Satan and death, and with a word overthrows them all. It's a very exciting story. And to read it for the first time, well, I can hardly imagine that. I've read it so often, I almost take it for granted. But as they read it, some of them for the first time, taught, I believe, well by the teachers in their groups, they see in front of them the authority of Christ, the Sovereign Lord. Now, what does he exercise his sovereign authority for? We learn that in chapter 2. And that first section in chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, shows that the priority of the Sovereign Lord is to release men from their sins. By so doing, he reconciles God and man, and he reconciles man with man. There can't be a priority greater than that. In this wonderful section, there are three uh, little subsections. The story of the paralytic, a story of forgiveness. The story of Levi, another story of forgiveness. And then in verses 15 to 17, the fellowship with Jesus that results from that, fellowship, from that forgiveness, fellowship round his table. And then in case we should be rather dim-witted and not have understood where we're going, verse 17 wraps it all up. Jesus summarizes what he's in the world for. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, my friends, that's a marvelous description of the grace of God, isn't it? The grace of God is God in Christ calling sinners. The grace of God is God through Christ forgiving sin. I hope you don't underestimate the forgiveness of sins. I want to come on later to say that for many years I did. For many years I got the impression from some teachers at any rate that forgiveness was a kind of preliminary. We had to get that settled and then put out of the way. And then the really exciting things began. Well, I've changed my mind about that long ago. The forgiveness of sinners, the reconciliation of, a, of, of God with man and man with man, that is the most exciting thing of which the Bible speaks. We never get beyond it. Now, I want to focus tonight in this verse 14 on three elements in God's grace. I was told this morning that I had many too many verses, so I'm retaliating by only having one. Uh, I won't promise that we'll look at no cross-references, but I'm going to get all my three points from this one verse so that uh, you see I can do it, in case you felt that I had to have the whole Bible in order to teach one truth. So let me look at these three elements in the grace of God. They're very familiar elements, but they come out in this story wonderfully powerfully. First, the grace of God means that God chooses. God chooses. As he passed by, he saw Levi and said to him, follow me. Now let me say straight away that this is a difficult thing to explain because there is no human analogy to this unique divine activity. God's grace is free grace. That is, that in making his choices, he is under no constraints whatsoever. He may do what he wishes, he may call whom he wants. Now, there is no human analogy to that, as I will show in a moment, though it is very obvious. Let us suppose that the early Christian enterprise, the calling of the Twelve, the beginning of the kingdom of God, was a democratic thing. And that Jesus gathers the four together, whom he has called in verses 16 to 20 of chapter 1, and he says something like this. He says, boys, children, I want to tell you that it's time to call the fifth member of our band. I'm going to call twelve, and I've only called four. I've decided it's time to move ahead and call another. And I want to tell you that I propose to call Levi. What do you think? 
Which Levi, they say? Well, I mean Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Not the tax official. Yes, the tax official. Oh, no. <laughs> Do you know that lovely bit when Paul tells Ananias to go to uh, Saul of Tarsus? I love that part of Acts, don't you, Acts 9? And, uh, of course, it's, it's a staggering thing, isn't it, to be told to go and baptize this man. And Ananias, a good-hearted fellow, immediately protests and says, Lord, you've not heard. You've not heard all that this man has done in calling your, in persecuting your sense. You know, there are a lot of prayers in the prayer meeting like that, aren't there, when people spend a lot of time informing God of things that he knows well in advance. And I guess that the disciples, if this whole business had been democratic, and thank God the church is not a democracy in this way, they would have said, Lord, you've not heard. You could not possibly consider calling this man. Let us list for you, Lord. Quickly, listen to us, Lord. Politically. Politically, he's unacceptable. He has to do with Herod. That'll never do. Religiously, he is unacceptable. He has dealings with the Gentiles, and for our Jewish friends, he's unclean. He's not only politically and religiously unacceptable, he's socially unacceptable. He's greedy. We've had enough of yuppies. We don't want any more. We don't want to show that this is the value that you have. This is something we want to get rid of in our society, not underline and condone. Lord, you've not heard that politically and religiously and socially, this man is outside the pale. Lord, if you choose this man, this democratic body continue to say, your cause is at serious risk. Indeed, says one of the four, it's ruined, Lord. Now, strictly speaking, without any drama, that is true, is it not? And, of course, it remains in principle true today. Uh, perhaps you younger Christians won't realize this, but all the older Christians will know, now that you know your own heart after all these years, that when God called you, he was putting his kingdom on earth at risk. Oh, you smile, but it's true, isn't it? Now that you know what you know about yourself, you would never have taken that risk in saying that this is the way that the kingdom of God is going to be forwarded in the choice of you or me. I certainly wouldn't. And I'm quite serious about that. If we know the depth of our own heart, if we know our own deceitfulness and waywardness, if we know our own fragile frailty, then the risk of our becoming disciples of Jesus Christ and letting the whole thing down in front of the watching world is a very, very serious risk indeed. I hope you younger ones are long past what I call the school speech day syndrome. Do you have school speech days in America? Perhaps you don't. Perhaps you've been delivered from them. <laughs> Obviously you haven't. That famous man who arrives and he distributes the prizes, and then he gets up and says always the same kind of thing, which is complete nonsense, of course. He says, you're the hope of the future. <laughs> we're going to depend on you. You're the people we're looking to. You know, there's a kind of evangelism like that, isn't there? Well, I hope if you were evangelized in that way, you've got over it. Because I want to tell you that you're not the hope of the future, and that we can't depend upon you, and that... <laughs> and that apart from the grace of God, we shall certainly fail. No, no, think of God's patience with you. Think of the way that he stayed with you when you have fallen, when you betrayed him. Think of all those glaring inconsistencies. Think of that secret life that only he and you know about. You see, if we do that, the story of Levi is not such a strange exception. We tend to put him, don't we, on one side. We can understand the call of the first four. But Levi, well, of course, he is an exception. But is he really in principle? There's no difference. Not fundamentally. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have hearts that are like his, basically. So as I introduce the grace of God to afresh this evening, I want to point you to this total freedom to choose right outside a human framework. There is no human leader who can do that. It so happened that with the preachers yesterday, we were dealing with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
And so I think I shall have to have a cross-reference here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's look at the divine framework and compare it with the human framework. Now here is God planning his church on the European mainland. God calling together this group who are going to represent him in Corinth. It's a very important moment. And Paul asks them to look to see what God has done. He reminds them of God's purposes. He asks them to consider it, to look at it, to ponder it. Consider your call, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, that means able. Not many were of noble birth, of influential families. But God chose, God chose, God chose. What did he choose? That which is foolish. What did he choose? That which is low and despised. What did he choose? That which is weak in the world. Now let's transpose that into the human framework. Let us imagine a new president, newly elected, sitting down in his office. He has to choose his Secretary of Defense, his Secretary of the Treasury. He has to decide who are going to represent him and carry out the purposes he longs to see come to pass in the nation. And he says, I, I want to be a Christian man as president. I want to follow the example of God our Heavenly Father. I want to choose the kind of people that he chooses. Would he talk like that? Well, of course he wouldn't. Would he say to his aides, his advisors, I'm going to choose what is foolish, not many wise. I can't afford to have many clever men in my cabinet. <laughs> I'm going to choose what is uh, weak. I can't have many able administrators and competent men. I'm going to choose what is low and despised. I can't have many from influential political families, many from the Ivy League establishment or whatever. I can't, I don't want to do that. Well, he wouldn't get very far, would he? I mean, the human framework demands of him, demands of him, he has no freedom, demands of him that he shall choose people who come from these three areas of wisdom, ability, and influence. But God does not. Now, when I say that, and I think this is important, we are not saying that God's choices are arbitrary and capricious. All we are saying is that God's choices are without human precedent. There is no way we can look at some human analogy and say, this is how we do things, now we understand why God does this in this way. Sometimes this sense of amazement at who God calls becomes so insistent that we feel that the church cannot continue to exist unless in some way we can bring more important people into the kingdom. I've noticed in the last 25 years a kind of elitist evangelism. People come out to me at St. Helens. I've been there a long time. They know that I know what's going on in London, I suppose, a little bit from the Christian point of view. And they say, look, we ought to have some evangelism amongst the parliamentarians. We ought to have some amongst the business leaders. Now, I'm not against evangelizing anybody. The up-and-outs, as we call them at home, just as much need the gospel as the down-and-outs. Parliamentarians and emperors and kings need Christ. But I sometimes wonder if this very expensive elitist evangelism that sets people down in the most expensive hotels, eating the most expensive food, and treating them with kid gloves as though they're very special people and must have the gospel served up to them in a very special way, I sometimes wonder whether that is worthwhile. I don't notice in London that all the efforts we've made amongst parliamentarians has made uh, any great inroads into the kingdom of God in our country, for the kingdom of God in our country. Don't seem to me that they're very strong Christians. Doesn't seem to me that by choosing these people who are VIPs, we seem to be enlarging the scope of the gospel. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Maybe we should be wiser and realize that we have to sow our seed widely and that uh, God is the one who calls, and he calls in free grace. Look again at verse 14 of Mark 2. How is Mark writing this sentence? As I understand it, as I look at verse 14, there is no suggestion here that Levi is making a decision. As I read verse 14, I understand Mark to be saying that Christ is making a decision. 
Now, of course, there's a response from Levi. Of course, there is a human response to this divine decision. But the decision is Christ's. And therefore, it is a powerful example of the grace of God in calling whom he will. There is no understanding of the grace of God in the New Testament apart from divine choice. It's a difficult thing for us sometimes to face. Our minds sometimes rebel against it. Theologically, we can't always fit it in. But it's a fact, isn't it? It's a fact. When I first went to the city of London, to St. Helens, it's actually 27 years ago. It seems an awful long time, although the time has gone so fast. And I remember I had lots of time in those days. Now I seem to have none. And uh, I used to sit outside in the church because nothing very much had been going on and people used to look in to see what was happening and I would wait there hoping to talk to people. And uh, I would hope that some of these young... Uh, I don't, they weren't called yuppies in those days, but some of these young men and girls who were working in the city, many very fine young people there and older people too, that they would come in and I would get into conversation with them and talk to them about the gospel. And uh, indeed, I did have some interesting conversations, but progress was slow. And after I'd been there a week or two, I don't remember the details carefully, I simply remember the principle, and it's very much etched in my mind. A fellow came into the church who was a bit spastic and who was a bank messenger. That's a fairly low element in the city. That is, it's not very highly paid, and it's not a particularly big job. And uh, he came to talk to me, and he wanted to come back and talk again, and he wanted to come back and talk again, and it wasn't long before Christ had chosen him. We had many, many long conversations together, and I remember saying to myself once or twice, well, it's grand. I've even forgotten his name, it's grand that this fellow is now in the kingdom, but I don't suppose he's going to be very influential, and I must find the people who are going to be influential. It so happened, and I don't remember the details, it so happened that very soon after that he stopped coming to our services, and uh, I didn't see him for about seven or eight years, and one day he turned up again, a very, very different man. And first of all, he started with an apology. He said, I think you must have wondered why it is that I didn't go on coming back to St. Helens, but I found I was depending on you too much. I went and joined a church, and I'm now the head of the Sunday school, and he told me the list of jobs that he did in that church. I was absolutely amazed. God had chosen someone and put them to work, and they were being truly and mightily effective in their local church when I had been inclined, according to all human computations, to feel that he was one of the weak of this world and I must hurry on to the strong. We very, 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 very badly need being brought down to earth at times, don't we, in that way. Grace means that God chooses, and he chose Levi. Now let's look at our verse again. What else does it tell us about the grace of God? Grace also means, in the forgiveness of sins, that God, or God through Christ, liberates, not only chooses, but liberates and delivers. Now, as I said to you, I, I labored under the delusion for a long time that forgiveness was God coming to my life, so to speak, seeing that I'd got, well, I was quite young when he first intervened in my life, and it's as though God took the uh, story of my life and looked at all the stains in the past and said, I'll wipe that clean. And now start to live for me. Now, if that was all that forgiveness was, of course, I would simply turn over a new leaf, would I not? And write very much more on the next page that I'd wrote, written before. No, no, forgiveness must be something more than dealing with the past. It must be something that uh, provides for the future. And, yes, I'll have to have a cross-reference here. I'm keeping a check on them. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. I only thought of this because somebody warmed my heart by saying that they'd read my commentary on Colossians today. Well, I didn't think anybody had, so it's always nice to meet a stranger out there who has. And Colossians 1, 13 was a verse that first came home to me as I had to study and make it plain to others. I'd never really seen before the wonder of what is said here. Colossians 1, 13, 14. God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, that is, deliverance, 
the forgiveness of sins. Please notice what the forgiveness of sins is. Forgiveness of sins is redemption. What is redemption? It is deliverance. What is the deliverance? It is from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now, my friend, there cannot ever be in your life in the future a greater work of God than that. At one period in my own Christian life, I was brought into touch with people who gave me the impression that, yes, to be converted was fine, but God had a much greater work of grace to do in your life than conversion. And you couldn't ever really win souls for Christ and be affected until something had happened to you that turned you right upside down. I've forgotten what it was called, a baptism with power, I think. Now, there is no baptism of power greater than the forgiveness of sins. There is no change greater than that deliverance when he takes me out of Satan's kingdom and transfers me into God's kingdom. When I come from under the authority of, uh, of evil and under the authority of Christ. Is there any greater deliverance than that? What do people mean when they say, you're forgiven, yes, but you need deliverance? Our deliverance is through Christ and him crucified. We must stand on that. We must refuse to listen to the bluff of the devil. Look over to chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. This explains the theological groundwork of the forgiveness of sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 of Colossians. You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice, uh, forgiveness is being made alive. Having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's forgiveness, a glorious description of it. But go on, verse 15. What else did he do at the cross? He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in Christ in the cross. You see, in that lovely picture, you must hold verse 14 and verse 15 together. You cannot have verse 14 without having verse 15. If Christ has cancelled the bond that stood against you, if he's nailed your sins to the cross, and they are many more than you have any idea of, then at the same time he has disarmed the principalities and powers and delivered you from their dominion. Now come back to Mark 2, and it's all spelt out so obviously, isn't it? How could we miss it? Look at Mark 2. In order to spell it out for us, Mark begins by telling us the story of the paralytic. You might think verses 1 to 12 was simply a healing miracle. But it's not, is it? It's the story of the forgiveness of sins. It's a tremendous moment when Christ says that the forgiveness of sins doesn't belong to the last day, the day of judgment when the books are open, but that he is able to go to that last day and get the verdict of the last day and to bring it into this world and to apply it to this man's life. That's what forgiveness means. It means that I have the verdict of the last day now. And that, of course, to the scribes was naturally blasphemous, verse 7. Well, it's very easy to criticize it when Christ gives this forgiveness, of course, because nobody can see what is happening in the invisible world. You can't see, can you, Christ, go to that judgment day? You can't see that great acquittal. You can't see the forgiveness of sins in a man's heart. So I love the way in which he addresses them, don't you? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your pearls and walk. I advise you not to try that one. You will sh soon be shown up for lacking the powers of God. Because, of course, it is easy to say, isn't it? Well, sins are forgiven. But to say, take up your pellet and walk, that really puts you to the test, doesn't it? He says, for as far as I'm concerned, there is no difficulty in the one or the other, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to heal sickness. Is that what he says? No, no, he doesn't say that. He can heal sickness, but he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And this isn't a hysterical healing meeting when people get up and throw their crutches away and five minutes later they fall flat on their faces. 
Here's a man who hasn't got the bones or the muscles. Here's a man who's never learned to walk. But he gets up, his feet, his bones, his muscles are whole and in place, and he walks out before them all. That's miracle. And that's a description of what it means to be forgiven. You see what he's saying to us? Forgiveness is deliverance. Forgiveness is release from bondage. Forgiveness is release from paralysis. Forgiveness is arising to newness of life. Grace, says a fine writer, grace in the Bible always includes the idea of the divine power which equips a man to live a moral life. Let me read that again. Grace is not just God's undeserved love to sinners in forgiving them the past. It, quote, always includes the idea of the divine power which equips a man to live a moral life. Verse 14, then, is not the story of the offer of salvation. Verse 14, unless I am very blind in my Bible, is the story of a God who saves. The grace of God tells us not only of a God who chooses, but of a God who saves. The call of God saves and the call of God raises to newness of life. So different from our calls. I was standing in the hall of a very, very big rectory. I think you call it a manse, don't you? At home we call it a rectory in the Church of England. And this is a very large old house. And this man had a, w a wife, a charming wife, and a charming daughter. And we were standing in the hall together. And uh, the time when we should have left the hall was long, long ago. And from time to time he would stand at the bottom of the staircase and say, It's time to go. Come on. And then there would be a little voice echoing from the far corners of the bedrooms, coming, and nothing would happen. <laughs> and so we waited. Forgive me if I imagine, going from the ridiculous to the sublime, or the sublime to the ridiculous, that at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus stood there and said, Lazarus, come forth. And a muffled voice said, coming, and nothing happened. Now, when grace says, come, we come. Otherwise, you would not be in the kingdom of God today. This is not a story of moral reformation. It's not a story of a man determining to stand up and say goodbye to the past. It's a story of divine grace. It's a story of God in Christ meeting a man and there and then setting him free. Christian life moves from freedom as its basic uh, gift and equipment. Now, thirdly, let's look at our verse again. Grace means choice. Grace means power. Grace means command. As he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, that is not an invitation. It's a command. It's not an option. It's an order. This is the message of Mark. We have here an authoritative Lord. And I think that this must have been learnt by the disciples very early because you will know that in Peter's theology and in Peter's letters, he has a very, very interesting way of referring to faith. I won't ask you to turn it up in order to keep from too many cross-references, but do you remember in Peter's letters what word he uses instead of faith? Would someone tell me? It's obedience, isn't it? I heard somebody say it, Yes the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, to obedience. By obedience, we're purified. Now, he doesn't mean, of course, that we're purified by works. What he means is that faith is obedience. It's the obedience of faith. It's following when God tells me to follow and I don't know where I'm going. So here, then, is the third ingredient of the grace of God in Christ. Follow me, and he rose and followed him. 
And I hope you will agree with me that there is no cheap grace here at all. He is setting, he's not setting a man here free to be himself. He's setting a man here free to belong to Christ, never to return to the old life. I was so thankful we had this very clearly dealt with in our questionnaire between four and five. Of course, the Christian may fall and fall many times. Being a Christian does not mean that I am always victorious and never fail and never find myself uh, sorrowful because I have, have, have fallen. But the Christian is someone who, when he falls, uh, rises again. That's the mark of him. He goes on obeying. However many times he falls, he falls to weep, to be sorrowful, not to go back on that beginning, but to continue from that beginning. So we may say quite simply that the only certain proof of my forgiveness, the only certain proof of my call and election, is that today I am following the Lord. May I say that again? It's not some spiritual gift like tongues. It's not some particular denominational allegiance. It's not some devotion in a fanatical way to a cult leader. It's not great knowledge. The only proof that I have been forgiven is not some decision that I made in the past. It is that today I am following Jesus. Was Levi forgiven? Yes, he rose and followed Jesus. And mind you, it wasn't easy then because these stories are called by the commentators, and very rightly, the stories in chapter 2, the conflict stories. The battle has already begun. It is quite clear that to follow Jesus was not going to be an easy life. Now, I don't want to spend much time on cheap grace, but I do think in the next 20 years we face a real danger from it. What does it mean to follow Christ? It is not some emotional commitment merely, is it? Commitment to the Lord must mean commitment, for example, and I only take this at random as an example. Commitment to the Lord must surely mean commitment to the Lord's day, mustn't it? It's a very strange commitment that says I'm committed to the Lord through the winter months, but when the summer comes, then my Sundays belong to myself. I had a, a spiritual leader when I came out of the Navy. I went to university at Cambridge, and I did a lot of youth work, and my leader was very, very tough. And every, I mean, looking back, I'm simply amazed. I, I, I just did what I was told by the leader. But it was a wonderful training. Every Sunday, I went to the bus station and caught a bus and went to some school and gave a talk to the Christian Union. It may have meant many, many miles to go to some of these little schools, boarding schools and other schools where there was a little Christian group meeting. And uh, every Sunday, he had some job for me to do. I'm so thankful that right from the beginning, it was made plain to me that commitment to Christ meant commitment to his day and to his service. Well, it certainly did with Levi. Look at verse 15. What's happened here? As Jesus sat at table in his house, surely that his is Levi. Many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. Well, of course, when Levi's heart was open to the gospel, his house was open to the gospel. What better place to meet with Jesus? Levi didn't say to his old chums of the tax collecting table, come with me to the synagogue next week, will you? What a hope. No, he says, come to my house. The curtains are the same. The, uh, the furnishing is the same. The food is the same. The surroundings are the same. They feel at home there. And lo and behold, who's sitting there? Jesus. That's the very best kind of evangelism, isn't it? Yeah, when, he, when we say he rose and followed him, he rose and followed him. And that meant commitment to his service from the beginning. Now, I'm going to stop describing the grace of God now. I want now to go on to application, and I think this application is very important. I don't want to finish simply marveling at the grace of God. Let me summarize the grace of God. It means God's choice, God's power, God's command. It is of the gracious mercy of God that he has called us, enabled us, and led us.
Now, I asked myself three questions during my flight over here earlier in the week, and I'm not yet sure wholly of my own answers. I must leave you to make up your own mind. Here's my first question. I asked myself, do I believe in the grace of God? That is, do I believe that the Levites in the city of London, and they are legion, can become fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ and be completely changed in their whole outlook and ambitions? Now, I'm not saying this uh, because I want to uh, expose my own frailty to you. I simply want to say it honestly that for several days after I asked myself that question, I had honestly to say that I was not sure that I did. Indeed, I almost felt that I was torturing myself. Of course, we have seen some Levites changed. We have seen the grace of God in men like this, but all too few cases of real outsiders. It's quite clear that many of our weekday congregations don't believe this. A man came to me the other day. He said, at last I've got somebody to come to the service on Tuesday. I said, good, who? Oh, he said, he's a church warden. They're elders in the Church of England. I said, that's grand, and I'm so glad. Um, but you know, this is a service for outsiders. I said, if your church elder is unconverted, well, of course, he's very welcome. But what about getting the office atheist? Why well, is that that's very difficult, isn't it? Well, it's difficult to get him to come, and it's difficult to believe that when he came, anything would happen. Well, I came to the conclusion that I was in some ways asking myself the wrong question. You see, in a sense, I can't answer that question. But I have got to ask this question, am I willing to do my part? We were discussing this in the questionnaire. Believing that something is indeed God's work and only God can do it does not mean biblically that I do nothing, does it? The Lord gives me understanding in all things, says Paul in 2 Timothy. But then he says, think hard and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. The fact that the Lord alone can enlighten the mind doesn't mean that I don't have to think. The fact that the Lord alone can change the heart of Levi doesn't mean that I haven't got to go and evangelize him. It all depends upon God, but it also all depends upon me, and that's the point of verse 13. We'd missed that, hadn't we? Let's look at it. Levi would not have been changed. The grace of God would not have been active in Levi. Verse 13 hadn't been taking place. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. I take it that is the context. That if I want to see Levi's in the city of London saved, I've got to go out as well as ask them to come in. We've got to have invasion of evangelism as well as invitation evangelism. One of my staff is always saying that to us. He was with Campus Crusade. He's now joined our staff. He's a most, a most lovely person and a, a wonderful discipler of people. He's always saying to us, we mustn't simply invite people in, we must go out to them. We must ask if we can come and teach them. <laughs> we had a member of staff who was amazingly bold in this. He's now gone on to Belgium to do, uh, to do church planting. But he used to write round to, sit, uh, to leaders in business and say, may I come to you for one lunch hour and open the Bible and teach you what Christianity is all about? You'd be surprised how many great men said yes. I think they were so flabbergasted they didn't know what else to say. Or put it this way, since their secretaries obviously answered all their letters, this was the one the secretary didn't know how to answer. So she sent it back to the boss. So I take it that verse 13 is important in this. I've got to be willing to go out and you've got to be willing to go out and we've got to be willing to teach people the faith. If we expect to see the sovereign grace of God in action in the Levites, the son of Alphaeus, in this world. What a very important balance that is, and what unbalanced people we are. So often, isn't it, evangelism has been all human activity, and how frightening that is. It's a kind of Arminianism gone to seed, isn't it? It's a kind of human manipulation and pressure, and I'm sure you fear that, as I do, especially as we're so brilliant at that pressure. <laughs> Your advertisements are certainly, they're certainly the most astonishing that I've ever seen. And I can only imagine that people spend all that money on them because they work. I was watching one on television a little time ago, and uh, 
There was a most powerful advertisement for uh, toothpaste, and it so happened I was down at the chemist the next day, and I went in to get some toothpaste, and I looked for this particular brand. I wasn't going to buy it, Mark Hill. I'd made up my mind, no, I was certainly not going to do it, but I just wanted to see it so I could pass it by with court scorn. <laughs> and I could look at this collection and say, I'm not going to have you, because I was told to. When I got to the collection, they'd all gone. That was at 12 noon. You couldn't find one, so it obviously pays. I don't know what your Surgeon General does here, but our Ministry of Health has insisted that on every one of these magnificent hoardings selling cigarettes, it has to say, this will seriously damage your health. Now, you really do have to be brilliant in advertising, don't you? To be able to spend the money on advertising, telling people that what you are selling will kill them, and they chew up to buy it. So no wonder, alas, and I say this with real sorrow, no wonder some men in evangelism have decided to go that way. But if there is an Arminianism that has gone to seed, there is also a Calvinism that has gone to seed. That is when we say that it all depends upon God. Only God can change men's hearts. Only God can save a soul, and so we don't do verse 13 at all. And in our church, there's been no growth, therefore, for ten years. No real outreach. No holy boldness, which, as Eric Alexander told us this afternoon, is the mark of the sovereign grace of God. It's awfully sad to meet a church like that, isn't it? A church where they put up the barriers, where they've retreated, where they no longer know how to speak to the world, and they're just leaving it to God. That's almost blasphemy, isn't it? There, therefore, was my first question, and it was a very serious question I asked myself, and I dare to ask it to you. Do I believe in the grace of God? I think the only proof that I believe in the grace of God is that I will seek to put verse 13 into practice. Second question, very quickly. Is this evangelistic concern the priority of my church and my group? You see, obviously, it was the priority with Jesus. We were looking at that, uh, I think, at Westminster a couple of days ago in this amazing story of the paralytic who's let down through the roof and uh, is waiting for Jesus to heal him, and he doesn't heal him. He looks down at him and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven you. As much as to say, that's the first thing you need. The young man might well have looked up to him and said, I didn't come for a religious meeting. Can't you see what I need? But the priority is forgiveness. I will never speak against healing because in our own church we have recently had a wonderful case of a senior businessman with young children who had a brain tumor and in answer to the prayers of the people of God he has been healed. As far as we can see, wonderfully healed. We thank God for it. But I have noticed that people who let this thing become too much in the front of their minds seem to let it gobble up everything else. Always evangelism is a priority. Is it a priority for you at college or theological seminary? You say, we're here to teach people theology. No, 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 yes, you may be. But evangelism is still a priority. Your college should still be seeking to evangelize. What efforts are you making to win the people around there? Oh, but I belong to a Christian relief agency. We do things like the averting famine and so on in the name of Christ. Nevertheless, evangelism is still the priority. Oh, but in the summer I have my own holidays to think of. Nevertheless, evangelism is still a priority. Holidays are a wonderful time for it. Now, quite seriously, is it a priority? It's amazing how people can think that if they're in a theological seminary or going on holiday or doing work for Christian relief, which is a wonderful thing to do, that therefore they don't have to make this a priority. But I understand this to be for everybody. That means it's for me too. I mustn't just preach to people about doing it and never speak to somebody outside the church at all. It's easier for pastors to get like that. Third question and last. And this has puzzled me and is worrying me a lot and I haven't stopped thinking about it and I've got to do a lot of work on it so I can't give you any definitive answers. But we at St. Helens in the city are very much into denomination. All our congregations have people from all kinds of denominations and I've become increasingly enamored of evangelical unity. Not ecumenical 
unity, as it's understood in Britain, which has totally failed to bring people together. But I sometimes wonder if we will ever stop quarrelling. I sometimes wonder if we can learn to accept those whom Christ has accepted. I was depressed to go down a street in London recently and see the Gower Memorial Chapel, which has been a dead cause for many years. It's obviously got a new minister and there's some lovely bright notices outside and he's preaching the gospel. And I just rejoiced to see that. The lights were on and there was an evening preaching meeting going on. I nearly went in and I had to go on to something else. And then my heart was slightly chilled because I saw in very large girl letters uh, that this was a strict and particular church, Baptist church and it listed all the reasons, all the things I had to do if I wanted to come in there. I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Is this the grace of God? I'm sure they believe in the grace of God there. I have no doubt of it. I'm sure that young minister is a fine man. I felt towards the end of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' life that he was beginning to wonder whether evangelicals ever would be able to have unity together. In the sense, not of one denomination, but of genuinely accepting one another. I think it's a tremendously important thing, and I think it comes out of this story. It comes out of the passage, verses 15 to 17, doesn't it? You see, the Pharisee will never allow it. What the Pharisee saw there is that those whom God has accepted will accept one another. That was very threatening. There is a little microcosm of the church, isn't it, in verse 16. Those who have been forgiven their sins, eating at table with Jesus. Let's have no barriers there except the barriers against sin. Let's have no barriers against saints, only sins, that we may show that we believe in the grace of God. The grace of God, it shows itself in this verse in choice and power and command. Do you believe in it? Do you understand it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, when we first entered your kingdom, we thought we understood your grace so well. It seemed to be so easy. It seemed to be so simple. But the older we get, the more marvelous it is to us that we are accepted for Christ's sake. We thank you for that sovereign grace. We thank you for that freedom to choose. We thank you for that enabling power we thank you for that command that holds every Christian heart. We thank you that we're under orders, that we must follow and we must serve. Thank you for telling us what we have to do so that we know we have no choice but to please you and to serve you till journey's end. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your marvelous grace tonight.